podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. With the new Chevy Silverado, you might be driving in this. But with the Silverado's redesigned interior and large infotainment screens, it'll feel more like this. Introducing the new 2022 Chevy Silverado. Find new upgrades. Find new roads. Chevrolet. Yeah, Dave does join us now to have a chat about his new book. It's a grand old team to report. I've got a copy right here in front of me there. Uh, absolutely fantastic stuff. Uh, first and foremost, Mike, congratulations. It's a, it's a great read and it seems to have been well received by a lot of blues. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's, uh, I've only seen the one physical review so far uh, actually written, you know, because obviously I'm old school. And uh, that was on Toffee Web and uh, they did me proud. They were, uh, they were very, very complimentary. And I'm led to believe that there are a number of others lined up, you know, to some of the independent sites. Uh, I've not seen one in the Echo yet. I mean, I know we've, um, we've done um, podcasts about it. And we, I mean, that's the world we live in now, isn't it? You know, so everything's yeah. digital. Uh, but I would quite like to see an actual physical review. Uh, but yeah, people have said nice things on social media. The Amazon reviews are very positive. Apart from some Liverpool fan who jumped on and was mocking about, uh, we haven't won a trophy since 1995. You accept yeah. that, I suppose. Yeah, well, I suppose if you read the book, they'd probably know that, wouldn't they, you'd imagine? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the guy that wrote this wasn't capable of actually formulating, you know, sort of reading skills. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it seems to be very well received. I'm pleased with it. I'm pleased with the reaction so far. Mm. And I just hope people are enjoying it. Yeah, and you say there about this sort of change in forms of media, and I think that's, that's something me and you have spoken about before on another podcast. I mean, what was the, the sense like when you finished this? Did you get, a, was, it, was it more satisfying than, you know, some of the pieces you've done down the years or some of the, the fantastic audio stuff you guys do as well? Or, and again, I think we, we've spoken about this in the past, that you've said previously that you've had a lot of these stories lined up for a long time. Yeah. You've sort of been building this book up over time. How much did you actually have to write during, you know, yeah. when you when you thought to sat sat down, or was it just a case of piecing bits and pieces from here and there? One hell of a lot. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I had some of the anecdotes already down. Uh, you know, the the one about diamonds when we went out and bumped into Peter Beagle and Vinnie Sandways and ended up having a very very late night before Diamond beautifully chipped the ball over Tim Flowers' head to give us the lead against Blackburn. Uh, Peter Johnson, you know, sort of going on the air with him before the uh, 1996 FA Cup final. The um, story about going round to his house to get the results of the first ground move poll. I mean, these are all little anecdotes that I thought people would be interested in, and I'd knocked together into you know some kind of like story form uh, in my inbox on my email. But they only amounted to I think it was about just shy of ten thousand words. Now, never having done a book of this scale before, when I went to see uh, the publication arm at Reach PLC and said, "Would you be interested?" And they bit my hand off and said, oh, yeah, I'd be very interested, but we want to do it this year. This was, um, I went to see it just before Christmas, I think, uh, December 2019. And he said, we'd like to get it in the market for, you know, Christmas 2020. Um, would you be able to commit to that? And I said, well, I don't know. What would it entail? Well, we'd need 80,000 words from you by July. Wow. And I thought, right, okay, I've got 10,000. That's another 70,000 <laughs> words. Okay. I said, I won't commit. I said, I'll just say, I'll give it a go. And I'll let you know as soon as I can whether I'm likely to get it finished or whether I'm not likely to get it done. Anyway, you know, the, the horrible things that happened in the world, the one good thing that came out of it from my point of view is I suddenly had a bit of extra time on my hands, saved myself an hour and a half in commute time every day. And I'm sat where I'm sat now, you know, so for nine and 10 hours every day. So I was able to get really stuck into it. So as a result, I was pretty much done by the beginning of June. And so it was all then a question of just proofreading and fact checking. 
So, uh, yeah, it was a lot of work, but equally the circumstances in the world at the time meant that I was able to get it done fairly smartish, to be honest. So I was surprised at how quickly I rattled through it. And most of it's up there. You know, so it wasn't anything yeah. I had to research in any great depth. I mean, for argument's sake, Gavin Buckland, who you know, so does a lot of our Royal Blue podcasts, who did that wonderful Money Can't Buy Us Love book, the amount of research that went into that. And Gab told me, he said, you know, the past seven years, he actually spent, you know, so sort of putting that together. This wasn't, this was all stuff that was coming out of my memory, out of my mind. So, you know, it didn't take a great deal of, uh, of research. So that helped, certainly. Yeah. Oh, God, must be jealous of your photographic memory there. I mean, <laughs> you, you knock a book out in a few months and he's taken seven years to put this, to put this together. Oh, no, this is a great read. I mean, I was, I was just, oh, yeah, yeah. It's so personal, so many of the stories in this. I mean, it's my journey, you know, so as an Everton fan, how I became a blue, uh, going to the match as a youngster, right up to our legendary weekend in uh, 1984 at Wembley, which mm. was just one of those wonderful weekends. That, you know, so everything that was perfect about it, which was just a great weekend. And, you know, round about that time, I started working in the weekly newspapers around here. And so it was that, you know, sort of trans aggression, if you like, from, you know, becoming a, a fan to, you know, to becoming a professional journalist. Mm. And then I was quite fortunate as well in the era in which I started. Um, access was so different then. You know, the local newspaper was embraced, you know, with open arms enthusiastically into a football club. And as a result, many of the individuals that I was seeing on a daily basis, they were like, oh, it's a similar age to myself. So I became friends, you know, so friendships which endure to this day. And that can't really happen to the same degree today because the media demands on football clubs are so intense and are so great that um, it's impossible for a football club, you know, to actually admit the media as much as maybe they would like. I think I used the, uh, the metaphor about uh, I started in journalism as football clubs started to pull the drawbridge up uh, yeah. on journalists. And they did to a degree. And disappointing, really. And it doesn't necessarily need to be that way all the time. I mean, I carried an anecdote in there about Wayne Rooney when he became um, England captain only three or four years ago and actually mm. telling Gareth Southgate he wanted the media allowing to stay in the same hotels as the players were staying in and he wanted them to have greater access to the players because he believes that creates an atmosphere of trust and also the journalists themselves are a little bit more cautious and aware of what they're writing because they know mm. they're dealing with these people on a daily basis so it can still work and it can still help but I understand why the world has changed you know in terms of access to football clubs and why I was very fortunate really uh, to get the access that I did. Yeah and I think it's this is why one of the reasons that the current journey wants to go and get this because I think that the phrase you use there in regards to pulling the drawbridge up is, is absolutely right and it feels to me as though something like this where there is so many anecdotes and so many stories you tell and I think what, what struck me reading it, Dave, was that throughout so many of Everton's crucial moments in the time you've been working at the club or, you know, a fan, there's yeah. been someone who's prominent within the club, either with you or on the phone to you straight away. <laughs> and I suppose that, that, that's testament to yourself and the, the way in which you've been able to establish those contacts down the years. Or maybe you've just got a, you know, a similar taste in boozer to a lot of the Everton, Everton players <laughs> who live in, uh, in living form. But, but I think it's... I think that that in itself is something that, that's, that's never going to happen really in the future, is it? You know, you, people aren't going to be in pubs while, you know, players being sold behind the manager's back, like after Doug yeah. Ferguson and, you know, yeah. David Unsworth there. And I think that's that's what makes this, you know, it, your, your writing style is so polished and so colourful, but there's a raw edge to this book as well because of the yeah. stories you tell and, and the places that you, you were in when these moments happened. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it was, there was almost like a them and us situation that existed back then. And by 
us, I meant the local newspaper, was almost part of the football club. Um, the football clubs didn't have media departments then. Uh, you know, I wrote half the programme, you know, so in the, the 1994, 95, 96 era, which again is how I managed to get so many close relationships with so many key people at the club because Walter had his uh, manager's column, Archie Knox had uh, an assistant manager's column, Gary Speed had a captain's column, then Dave Watson. So, you know, I'd be ringing these people on a weekly basis on behalf of the football club. But even though them knowing that I was, you know, sort of the echoes, you know, sort of Everton writer. And so the, the lines were blurred quite a lot more than they are now. And it was certainly a change when Everton moved to Finch Farm and it was in 2007. And they had a media department then and they did have, um, you know, sort of people that were trying to produce uh, journalistic content on behalf of the football club for their website, uh, for the programme, for club magazines and stuff. And so they started to distance the local newspaper a little bit. And we still get, you know, decent access. You know, so Phil Kirkbride, the Everton writer now, still gets decent uh, contacts with, you know, sort of keep people at the football club, you know, sort of players, managers. But it's not as uh, enthusiastically welcomed as maybe it was, you know, so sort of back when I started in the late 80s, early 90s, when we travelled with them uh, pre-season. Yeah. Certainly you'd travel with the team on the coach. As a result, you got to know, Obviously, some players, you know, so just didn't particularly like you, so you wouldn't get on with them, but other people that, you know, you fought the rapport with, uh, you got to know. And so, yeah, you're right, you know, so when key moments in the club's history happened, you're able to bring these people at the drop of a hat. I mean, I was stood opposite Unzi when Duncan Ferguson was sold, having a pint, you know, so in the cross house in Formby. And um, this fan, Mark Denny, rang me, and he was almost like uh, accusing me, where are you? Duncan's being sold, it's all going off here. Hmm. And I was like, well, I'm having a pint, a family report, why? <laughs> said, Duncan's being sold. So, you know, I actually said, Unzi, what more have you heard? And Unzi had heard nothing at all. But I was able then to ring other people at the football club, you know, so Walter was always happy to pick up the phone whenever. Mm. Uh, I went down to Belfield the following morning, which is where that wonderful story comes from. Yeah. Uh, Walter told me about uh, he's walking down the staircase with Archie and their respective wives as Duncan's walking back up. And Duncan bumps into them and goes, I thought you might have stuck up for me, Gaffer. Walter's like, stuck up for you? What are you talking about? He says, well, I've been sold, haven't I? You've been sold? What are you talking about? Have you signed anything? Well, well no, I haven't, but I've shaken hands on a deal. So what, what do we do? So he goes down to the little referee's room next door to the changing rooms at Goodison and talking to Archie, what do we do? And in a pause in the conversation, uh, Janice knocks Archie's wife, pipes up and says, well, uh, you know, Archie, what I'm hearing in the lounges upstairs is true. If you have got £8 million for him, it sounds like a hell of a good deal. <laughs> I won't use the actual language that Archie used. Uh, <laughs> Janice, shut the F up. To which Ethelhead jumps in. You can't talk to Janice like that. It all degenerated. So Walter told us that story the following day down at Belfield when I told him that, you know, our office had reservations that he could possibly have been in the dark about him and must have known. And he went absolutely ballistic. Uh, trying to get hold of Peter Johnson, you know, so, so we, I could hear him say that Walter knew nothing whatsoever about it. But he also told me that, you know, so uh, anecdotes as a way of, I don't know, allowing me into his thought process. But that happened a lot. Um, when Howard quit in 1993 in December, Tony Cotty was doing a column for us. So, you know, one of the first things I do, rang Tony, what, what do you know about it? And those kind of things were just, you know, encouraged really. And uh, mm. don't happen anywhere near as much now. I mean, a player now would not be allowed to do a, a weekly column with the local mm. newspaper because everything's so much more controlled. Sure. Football club, which is disappointing, but equally I understand why too. 
Looking back on, on those moments, and the, the Duncan one in particular is fascinating in the way you, you tell the story in the book is great because I believe, uh, forgive me if I forgot the editor's name at the Echo there, their policy at the time on this was that Walter Smith had known about oh, yeah. Duncan, Duncan's sale. I mean, how, 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 do you, how do you weigh that up as a, as a journalist in regards to what you're doing and what, what you're writing? Yeah. Because you've got, well, you've got, you know, you've got to tell you one thing, you've got the chairman yeah. telling you one thing, you've got the manager telling you something else, you've got your contacts yeah. there. I mean, how do you come to a conclusion in regards to what you're doing in that it's sort of situation? It's very, very, you've got to try and judge people's character and who you believe, you know, so who you believe the most. Uh, I mean, much as I loved so many of the managers I worked with, I knew some of them were just telling me bare-faced lies a lot of the time. Uh, I remember going down to see Howard one morning. This is an anecdote I didn't carry in the book. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he was linked with bringing Paul Wilkinson uh, back to Everton. This was about 1997, it will have been. And uh, so I went in to see Howard and said, Howard, uh, Daily Miller today says that uh, you're trying to sign uh, Paul Wilkinson from Charlton. Absolute bollocks, um, absolute bollocks, not a shred of truth in it at all. I said, all oh, right, okay, well, there are quotes from Eddie Lawrence who says he's spoken to you. Really? Oh, well, he was only being brought in as a squad player. It wasn't being brought in <laughs> the first. I was thinking, right, okay. So you had to be aware of the, the, the characters that you're dealing with. Now, that particular incident, uh, Peter Story, uh, sorry, Tony Story was the acting editor at the time, and he was a business journalist, and he obviously thought that no credible business organisation could be run in such a fashion. Uh, and he also was getting Lorraine Rogers, who was Peter Johnson's partner, ringing the office and speaking to the news desk, basically trying to defend Peter in her partner's corner, saying that, yeah, of course, Walter knew. Uh, he's only taken the, Peter's taken the flack for the good of the football club, but Walter knew. So news reporters are hearing that. I'm hearing what I'm hearing, you know, so from Walter. And Walter, for all his, you know, sort of faults, people perceive him as being a fairly dour individual. Uh, he told me a lie once, actually, when Nick Barmby was uh, sold, but he explained yeah. himself afterwards about that. You know, he had Steve Watson sat opposite him. He was trying to persuade Steve Watson to sign for the club. And if he'd known one of his best players was going to uh, leave, he might not have been able to sign. But largely, Walter was a very honest individual. And I believed him. And, you know, when he went absolutely ballistic that morning and basically said, you're not leaving this office till you've heard Peter Johnson tell you, I knew nothing about that. And uh, he's ringing him in his house, ringing him on his yacht, ringing him in his, you know, apartments. <laughs> very wise, he didn't pick up the phone. So I just believed him. And so you just have to make a judgment call, really. And, uh, you know, what you believe. And I went back to the office and said that, look, you know, so I'm not going to state my reputation on it, but I believe him. I believe him wholeheartedly that he didn't know anything about this. And so they were willing to take my word on it. And that became, you know, so our policy. Unfortunately, it was the truth, you know, because Peter Johnson then put his name to a statement a few days later, admitting he'd known, uh, you know, uh, that Walter didn't know anything about it. You know, so even though that we thought he might have had an inkling, it was all nonsense. And, you know, effectively, Peter stood down four and five days later. So, yeah, Obviously, strange yeah. times. Yeah, and what are some of the other parts of the book that I found fascinating, you know, one of the pieces you wrote uh, with the headline "Blundering and at the crash was about oh, yeah. uh, that, that target. Obviously, there's the taking the piss as well about the team after yeah. the 2003-2004 season. I mean, when you, when you look back at, at those those moments and those pieces, and I don't know if you would have wrote the headlines necessarily for, for that at the time yeah. or not, Um is, is that something that you feel so wouldn't be able to be done now? I know that the, you know, the, the local paper, as you say, in the book is meant to be you know, more supportive as regards to internationals. Yeah. It may look at things a bit more critically, but at the time, yeah. and by, by virtue of the fact we're speaking about it now, that people remember them, they were, they were huge pieces and about things at the football club that needed to be said and I think there needs to be a pointed response on. Do you still yeah. feel as though you could do that now and release those sorts of pieces with those sorts of strong headlines now? 100%, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
you know, that, that's what you know the echo exists for obviously it's uh, published in a different format now uh, but there's no reason why it shouldn't be as um condemnatory as it shouldn't be as as vocal uh, as it was back then I mean, i'm just trying to think of stories i've written recently uh, i mean there was one story only uh, 18 months ago maybe two years ago uh, about a journalist who worked for the sunday express who was basically criticizing liverpool fans you know so over uh, their reaction to Hillsborough and um, I wrote a very very uh, strong opinion piece about that and the guy ended up losing his job uh, as a result of that which doesn't fill me with any sense of pride but you know I, I still believe it was something that needed to be said those two articles you're talking about I mean the blundering inept and crass I have to say when I picked up the paper and I saw I remember the guy Roy Wright was the sub editor who put the headline on that and I'd written it you know so I had to stand by it but yeah. I thought oh god why have you put that headline on it and I thought, yeah. <laughs> The words themselves are strong enough, but you know when you see it screaming out of the page as a headline, you think, "Oh my God!" So yeah, I mean that you know caused a major fallout with myself and Peter Johnson, which endured for a long time. But taking the piss one, I think I actually actively pushed for that to be the headline because I just, again I felt so strongly about it. And in hindsight, you know there were things I could have done differently about that piece. Um, I basically lumped all the players in together, mm. and I know uh, Leon Osman took me to task over it and saying that look, that was my second game for the football club, and I ran my heart out that day. So like this was after the the five one against Manchester City, was it on the? Correct. I mean, I'd, I'd, see, I'd yeah. seen some of the players in in the Belfield Hall. Part of the, partly the fact that you know I was allowed such you know sort of intimate access. And yeah, they were basically you know, a couple of players, you know, uh, well, name them Tommy Gravison was like wandering around saying, ah, we're going to get battered on Saturday and we deserve to get battered. You know, the manager's running us too hard. The manager's a shitbag, the manager's this, that and the other. And I'm listening to this and thinking, wow, they know they're going to get battered. And then I see them turn, you know, failing to turn up basically and mm. just like going through the motions and having got themselves safe with a good Friday win against Tottenham, then lost, I think it was five of the next six games. And it was almost like, right, okay, we're safe. You know, so deep exhale of breath, and we can take our foot off the pedal a little bit now. I just thought that was wrong. And then, you know, the final game of the season to go to City uh, with a big, you know, sort of away support base as we always took there, and just go through the motions. It just it hurt me. And so, you know, I wrote the piece, and I was as strong as I was writing it uh, because because I'm an Evertonian. Because you know, it hurt me to actually see that. And so, I was probably much more critical of Everton than I would be of Liverpool. You know, when I was mm -hmm. in the chief sports writer, you know, so guys. Because it meant more to me. Um, and it worked out well in the end, that, to be honest, because I know the players went absolutely ballistic about that. And uh, Alan Stubbs, who was quite cute about the whole thing, uh, actually got copies of the article, uh, photocopies, and like, distributed amongst the players uh, <laughs> for the following pre-season, basically saying, look, this is what the uh, local paper thinks of us. You know, do, do we, do we recognise that? Are we really, you know, so that those kind of people? And it was a great psychological ploy. And um, as a result, we made this great start to the following season. Okay, we got battered on the opening day against Arsenal, but then recovered and then uh, ended up finishing fourth that season. Now, okay, I'm not saying that's anything to do with the reaction to that piece. But I'll be taking credit for it, Dave. Uh, oh, for fourth place finish, yeah. To be honest, it was quite worrying in this. The, the game that finally clinched that fourth place against Newcastle, the programme for that day, Steve Watson was still referencing that article saying, you know, at the start of the season, mm. some of the local papers wrote some you know, cruel things about us. We wanted to prove that we weren't that kind of, you know, those, those kind of people. Yeah. And it was weird. I mean, I was very close to David Moyes at the time. And uh, well, I'm still friendly with him, but you know, I was particularly close to him then. 
And uh, I remember him, you know, sort of showing me some running stats at the time, you know, sort of towards the end of that season, which underlined what I was saying, that the players had taken their foot off the pedal, you know, so, and they weren't running as hard as they had been earlier in the season. So it was fully justified, you know, so what I was writing. And, um, so, sorry, Dave, but did he show you those running stats in regards? Did you say him writing a piece, or did he just come no, to you with them? No, or, no. So, no we, we, I was just talking to him about it generally. We used to have like a 10 minute off the record conversation, yeah. then he told me what he wanted to go on the record with. And uh, I was talking about the players because the players had been moaning about. Um, we played Birmingham away towards, was it, oh gosh, the end of that season. We, we got beat 3 0 away at Birmingham. I think it was that season. And. Um, Kevin Campbell was supposed to be going on his, let's just get this right now, I think it was his stag weekend, or so some kind of celebration. And they'd gone out. Um, it was a couple of days before we were due to play Man United. And I think uh, when we were 3-0 down at half-time, got it back to 3-3 and then lost 4-3 quite late on. And um, Dave, David had got really, really angry that they'd gone out only a couple of days before. And we then had a 10-day break before the next game. And so he was running them really hard in training. And when they were complaining about it, and I, you know, they whinged to me about it, uh, the players that I knew. And I tentatively tried to broach the subject with him, saying, look, some of the players think you're pushing them too hard. And he basically you know, got very, very angry. So how can they possibly say that? He went out on the aisle last week, you know, so two days, we got three days before a game, didn't need to. Why didn't they go out and get this 10-day break? So, you know, I, I was quite close to him in that respect. And he showed me some running stats, which backed up, you know, so how he felt that they weren't being pushed too hard. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were basically just complaining for the sake of it. So, again, little insights that, you know, you got that I never actually wrote a piece basically saying that the running stats were down, but I was aware of that, and that probably informed some of the stuff that I was writing and coloured some of the stuff I was writing around about that time. Hmm. I, mean, I suppose, in regards to those sorts of pieces and the question I asked about, could you write that now? I, I think you write in regards to, you know, writing points to articles, and other things and the echo does it does a fine job but it's it's more could you say stuff about that about people involved in the football club now as well as you think just, just thinking there because I feel as though as you mentioned there you know to start the drawbridge does come up sometimes oh yeah I think oh we still we still get banned you know yeah. it's uh, it's happened quite but, recently um not never say recently probably the last time was under the Roberto Martinez uh, era when uh, Greg uh, was banned because basically he'd written a comment piece Something you probably do know. Progressive can not only offer you a great price when you bundle home and auto, they offer you round-the-clock protection. Something you probably don't know? The average oak tree branch can hold 70 pounds. Something you probably do know? Your neighbor is building their kid a treehouse. Something you probably don't know? A falling treehouse would take out your whole fence. Bundle your home and auto with Progressive and get more than a great price. Get round-the-clock protection. Something you know for the things you don't know. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates and third-party insurers and subject to policy terms. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. I believed that if um, David Moyes had been backed... Actually, no, sorry. It was... Um, Greg, that was a different time we got banned. That was when Greg got banned. <laughs> uh, for, for suggesting if David Moyes had been backed more fully in the transfer market, mm. uh, he would have had food for thought maybe uh, when Man United came calling. Didn't for a second suggest that he would never have gone to Man United. Mm. Um, you know, so that was it. You know, so Robert Elston, you know, so saw his backside over that one and, you know, so banned Greg. And my sports editor at the time, John Thompson, said that, well, if you're banning Greg, I'm sorry, none of us are going. Uh, so we all ended up watching the last match of the season in the Bullens Road rather than in the press box, which was quite cool. That was the one stand I'd never been in. So uh, I managed to complete the set. Greg got banned uh, a couple of times in the Roberto Martinez era. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does happen. And you are going to fall out with people. You just have to be honest. You just have to, 
you know, know that what you're writing, you honestly believe. Uh, and if you do, you can live with yourself then, you know, so regardless of how the football club, you know, reacts. At the moment, we've got a good relationship with the football clubs. Mm. I think at the time, you know, football clubs are peopled by people with different personalities. And, you know, there have been people in the past at Everton that, you know, some of them are virgin on paranoid. And, you know, so you, you couldn't write anything, you know, without falling out with them. Nowadays, I think there's an altogether, you know, sort of more accepting, more mature mindset at work in the football club. We probably haven't written anything quite as pointed as taking the piss, uh, but you know, we have the physical <laughs> stuff, you know, so in the past. And I think it's accepted a little bit more. And largely, we, we try and work with them, you know, so we, we try and bounce things off them. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult. We know we'll fall out again with them, you know, so sometime in the future. Hopefully, it won't come to bans, you know, so, but who knows? You know, so if we feel that something is important enough to, to warrant writing, you know, we would write it definitely. Yeah, and you've reported at times you've sort of taken you into the, the heart of the story on, on a couple of occasions. And I think that the, the period on the David Moyes in particular was, was my favourite part of the book. So I've sort of lived through that and been going the match through that. So it's great yeah. to get, you know, the lid lifted on some of those those parts. Uh, the first the first one, which is for oh my word, is where you find yourself potentially at the heart of a, a court case involving David Moyes and Wayne Rooney, Dave. That, that was absolutely terrifying, yeah. Um, it was one day when he'd... Uh, well, first of all, the, the actual uh, beginnings of the story uh, began when Wayne was involved in those very unsavoury, you know, sort of tabloid stories, yeah. um, which you know, appeared on the front pages. And um, I'd gone down one morning, I'd spoken to David, as I did, you know, informally, got a few things, you know, so on the record, came home. And then Sue Palmer, his PA, rang me at home and said, uh, you know, hello, Pran, I've got the gaffer for you, which was unusual. That didn't happen that often. I thought, right, okay, well, what does he want? And he goes, what have you put in today's paper? Sorry, well, what have you written? Wayne's just come in and gone ballistic at me. There was something you've written. So I said, I've no idea, hang on. So I got picked the paper and I read the story back to him. Sorry, he's gone ballistic at that. He accused me of leaking things to you, and there was absolutely nothing in there that you know, so that hadn't been written elsewhere. Not a great endorsement to the story I'd filed that day, but I think looking back in hindsight, I think it was because the, those lurid stories I mentioned uh, were referenced in the piece that I'd written. And okay, when they're written in a tabloid newspaper, you can maybe they're going to hurt, but you can maybe, you know, sort of distance from yourself a little bit, saying, look, it's tabloid journalism. You know what the tabloids are like. You know what the sun's like. Um, you know, none of it's true. But when you see it written in your local newspaper, maybe it brings it home, you know, a little bit closer to heart. And you, your family are reading the local paper and they're seeing it. Maybe that's why it got so upset. I don't know. You know, I've never spoken to him about it. Um, but must have been 18 months, two years later, um, when Wayne had produced, I think it was his second autobiography, the one with Hunter Davis. <laughs> and it actually referenced in here that David Moyes had leaked stories to the local press about him. And that wasn't true. Uh, I wish it had been. Um, so <laughs> David pulled me one day and says, hello, Prano, you know, so do you mind me meeting my brief? A fellow called Eddie Palladorio. I said, really? Why is this? He goes, oh, I need to get a statement from you. Uh, I'm taking Wayne to court. I'm thinking, oh, my God. So, you know, I had to sit down uh, with Eddie Palladorio on several occasions and give this, like, very, very long and detailed uh, witness brief. Uh, basically, you know, so how I, you know, David hadn't leaked anything, you know, so to me that I'd used in any of my stories. Mm. Anyway, I was then given a date when I had to appear in court, high court in London. And I thought, hang on, I'm not coming to journalism for this. And it was quite daunting. 
But fortunately, I think Wayne ultimately settled out of court with David and it was a significant sum of money. I think it was like half a million quid he settled for. And uh, I believe David gave it to the uh, Everton Former Players Foundation or, you know, some kind of charity. Mm. Uh, so I never had to have my day in court in the end. But yeah, it was, it was quite a, a, an eye-opening experience and a little bit daunting. That's something I was really looking forward to, I have to say. Oh, my word. I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> you can't grill like that. <laughs> oh, Jesus. But I suppose, and then I suppose the, the other one where you, you, you did very much become a, you know, in the crosshairs for some of the players, just when you wrote the piece about um, Tim Cale and how he was out yeah. at News Bar in town after missing an award ceremony that was caused after yeah. the, the death of Brian Lebone as well. Um, yeah. I, I, I honestly, when I was reading that, I was sort of like, I, if I was in that situation, I don't know how I would have coped with, with those personalities, with yeah. Tim Cale potentially a little bit angry. I mean, first and foremost, for anyone who's, who's not seeing this anywhere yeah can you just give a, a quick quick recap of what happened there yeah it was again it was you know probably an article a friday column which i used to do every week in the echo and i probably allowed emotion to cloud this one a little bit because uh, brian lebone uh, you know the lovely dear brian lebone who we all adored and who i knew very well and loved very much uh had gone to a supporters club presentation on the sunday night uh at the winslow uh, and on his way home, suffered a heart attack and passed away. Um, and I was like really, really upset about that. But then I was also aware that Tim Cahill was supposed to have been at the same function, but hadn't turned up because I didn't notice at the time, but apparently he'd been told by physio, uh, club physio, not to attend because he'd injured his knee on the Saturday against Birmingham City at Goodison. Now, I didn't know that, but I was aware that Tim had been out on Saturday night in town because he was involved in a bit of an altercation in the news bar. And, you know, Liverpool's like, you know, the big, biggest village in the world. <laughs> Everybody hears about everything. You know, and I heard that, you know, him and his, you know, the players he was with had to make a sharp exit. And so I thought, hang on, he's run out of a bar on Saturday night and yet can't come to the Windsor on a Sunday night. And I didn't know he'd been told by his club physio, you know, so not to turn up. So I wrote this piece comparing old style footballers with modern footballers and how old style footballers lived for the supporters and would do anything for supporters and that you know came up with some fairly cheesy payoff line about you know so modern footballers would do well to remember that fact and uh, tim understandably got very very angry about it and um banned the echo you know so the no players would talk to the echo for a long time and i think it was the uh, one of the media guys on the everson media department scott mcleod who i used to work with at the echo top fellow scott and um, he said, look, we need to get to the bottom of this. He says, you know, would you be prepared to come down and basically sit in front of the players and explain, you know, so why you wrote what you wrote? I said, well, if it's going to get to the bottom of, you know, so the players not talking to us. Yeah, definitely. So I came down and you can imagine quite a daunting experience. I'm mean, just sit in front of the players and explain yourself. What helped to a degree, uh, and I didn't put this in, in, in the book, but as I was walking into uh, Belfield, Lee Carsley was coming out. And Lee Carsley was moaning to her to sue the PA. What's this all about, Sue? Why have we all got to sit in front of there like naughty schoolboys? Just like being back at school, this. And that mm. reassured me a little bit. to thought, all right, well, not all the players want to kill me. You know, so it doesn't sound <laughs> too bad. So I went in there and I sat down. And it was, it was absolutely bizarre. Every single player sat around, you know, in a circle. And I sat at one end. And um, Jimmy Comer came in and... Uh, <laughs> As you know, so some fans may or may not be aware, his daughter is Jodie Comer, who's like one of Britain's greatest actresses. Uh, you know, so played Villanelle in the Killing Eve, uh, you know, series. And you can see where she gets her acting skills from. I hope he was acting because Jimmy walks in with a pair of boxing gloves and goes, Right, guys, we'll be needing these. And you've got what Tim can do to boxing, you know, uh, to corner yeah. fans. So I just thought, Oh, 
God, no. Anyway, you know, so Tim started off quite confrontational, you know, sort of leaning forward and, you know, sort of swearing and finger wagging. And, you know, when you're in a situation like that, I reacted probably a bit more confrontationally than I should have done as well. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, you know, so it, it, it's not going to go off. But, you know, so mm. what's, what's going on here? Anyway, Phil Neville, who wasn't the captain at the time, I think Davey Weir was, uh, Phil leaned forward and goes, okay, boys, boys, calm down, calm down. Let Dave explain what he did, and then we'll decide, you know, so what we need to do. And it was just, it was great leadership. It was great, you know, mm. um, pouring oil on troubled waters. And so he did, he calmed things down. I explained, you know, so my take, you know, so Tim calmed down a bit, and, you know, so we explained things. And we basically came to, you know, a, a, I don't know, middle ground in this, you know, so if mm. I was to write, you know, an article basically underlining how much the players do care, you know, so about the supporters and, you know, so on how hard they, they try and are willing to, you know, so go the extra mile, um, you know, so we can come to some kind of agreement where we'll start talking to the Echo again. Yeah. And I wasn't the Echo writer then. It wasn't me that was suffering. I think Dominic King was the Echo reporter back then. So poor Dominic basically wasn't getting the access. So we agreed to disagree and it was all like sort of brushed over and, you know, so things did, you know, sort of work out quite well in the end. But yeah, it was... Would that happen now? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not so sure it would. I'm not sure. So it could you know. be helpful, helpful if it did happen now? I think so, yeah. I think going down on a daily basis and seeing the players you're writing about on a daily basis makes you accountable. You know, so you think then about what you're writing. Uh, you know, if you're going to, you know, so say someone's got like the touch of a baby elephant and you know you're going down to actually see them the next day, you're going to think twice about it. You're going to be quite, you know, cautious about what you're writing you know so if you are going to criticize somebody you'll make sure it's absolutely justified and you're writing it for a real you know mm. justifiable purpose because when you go down there then you know you're going to basically be you know so pulled in front of them um so yeah i think it can be very very useful in that respect and as a reason you get to know people better you get to know people's motives better um you know so i i would talk to managers on a daily basis and i would know why they were taking decisions that they were taking and okay, I might not physically write, you know, those reasons in pieces, but it would colour the way I'm writing pieces and just allow fans to have a little bit of an insight into, you know, so why people are behaving the way they're behaving. And I think it's healthy. Definitely think it's healthy. Um, I understand that the demands on Footy Club now are ridiculous. I mean, back, you know, when I started, it was, you know, national newspapers, local newspapers, local radio stations, and that was about it. You know, so TV companies occasionally would come down to the training ground. But then, you know, Sky, you know, so it became this, you know, behemoth that took over the world. Uh, you'd have, you know, some club call, you know, so started to, uh, you know, so uh, be around. Uh, and then when the internet was launched, wow, you know, so suddenly, you know, so everybody started to have a voice and you started to get, you know, so independent media platforms like so popping up all over the place. And the club tries to embrace them all because it's good, you know, PR for the, uh, the football club. But you can't give them all uh, time. You can't give them all an opportunity to sit down, sit down with the manager. And so those opportunities to build relationships with people at the football club are less and less. I mean, nowadays, the people that I have relationships with at the football club are people that I've you know, sort of known for a long time, but built up you know, sort of down the years. Um, you know, people that were referenced in the book, you know, so sort of David Unsworth, who's like a very influential figure there now, Graham Stewart, who's an ambassador in Snowden, Bill Kenrice, you know, so chairman, who've had lots of ups and downs down the years, but you know, we're in a good place at the moment. And then some of, you know, so the people, you know, so as part of the, the management structure of the football mm. club, but the actual manager himself, Carlo, I think I've met twice, 
Um, you know, so it, it, it's difficult. It's very difficult now to actually try and build, you know, those kind of relationships that I enjoyed back in the day. Well, yeah, I suppose it's, I think that that story in particular sort of, it, it indicates maybe the one about Tim Cahill, maybe where football journalism was, was headed at the time and, and media journalism at the time. Because, you know, some of the stories you talk about earlier in the book, there's clear transparency and seemingly an understanding on both sides of why what's been written and what's been reported has been reported. Yeah. And maybe what happened with, with Tim and some of the other players there and that, that animosity, it's probably a product of them not not knowing you and not knowing you, your characteristics and not knowing what you're about. Whereas if they, they did, yeah. it, it, things might have been a little bit more transparent and it might have been taken a little bit better. I think so, certainly, yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate that before I started the Everton Writers' Job, I spent two years, maybe three years, uh, reporting on Tranmere Rovers and uh, basically travelling around the country writing about them. And clearly, I was the only journalist that, you know, was going everywhere with them. Uh, so, you know, I became very, very close to a lot of the players then. And, you know, very, very friendly, you know, with a lot of the players as a result. So, so much so that, uh, you know, their Christmas party, which always ended up in this absolutely ludicrous session at the Conti, uh, Club Continental, uh, before it became cream. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> and, um, and I was invited along, you know, so, and I was basically invited in there to see players misbehaving. And, you know, so I, I, I certainly wouldn't betray any of the confidence of what went on at those, uh, those you know, sort of sessions. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was embraced. And, you know, likewise, when I'm out on my first pre-season tours with Everton um, in the mid-90s, again, you know, so I travelled with them. And so, yeah, you know, you, you're accepted as part of the furniture a little bit. And it's up to you, you know, so if you were to write some of the things that you've seen, you know you'd betray confidences and, you know, you wouldn't be spoken to again. So you know how far to go, you know, you know, so what to write. That, was that, know, sorry, Dave, was that on your mind when you put this book out that you felt that you, maybe you were, you were betraying, if, you know, you're not by any means, but did you feel as though maybe you were? No, no, I don't think so, because, I mean, some of the stories that, you know, if you like, a little bit more salacious, if you like, you know, they're, they're mm. 25, 30 years ago, you know, course, I'm talking yeah. like the mid nineties, there's enough water gone onto the bridge and enough players have brought out, you know, their own stories and their own books to really, and Snowden's done a story, you know, his own book about, uh, you know, snod this for a laugh about you know, some of the you know, escapades they used to get up to. So I didn't feel I was be betraying any confidences as such there. Mm. Um, obviously there's some, well, the, the stuff that I've not written, you know, so, you know, some of the things I've written is that I just wouldn't, you know, so upset people by putting them in the book and they never will go, you know, I mean. I'll save that for the sequel. One of the stories I've written in there is about a player who came to see me uh, about on the premise of writing his own autobiography and um, during the course of our conversation, it then became very clear that he didn't want to write an autobiography at all. He just wanted to talk to somebody and he explained this story about basically how he tried to kill himself uh, because his life was in such a bad, bleak place. And um, he actually connected uh, a rubber tube uh, from his exhaust pipe uh, through the window of his car and was fortunately found uh, by his dad. And his dad pulled him out and saved his life. And, you know, uh, I will never name that fella. There's no need to. Mm. Uh, but, you know, to me, underlying why my football really isn't that important. So, you know, to the bottom end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, it's, as the fellow across the park says, it's uh, you know the least, it, it's the most important of the least important things in life, and that's that's right. So yeah, there are some confidences. You know, I would never betray really. Yeah. Uh, so you know, so, so some stories will never be, never never be revealed. Yeah, and that that's that's a measure of of, of the fellow yeah. you are, mate, and the reporter you are. And just just finally before we wrap up. Um, your life is so intertwined with this football club. Um, <laughs> married, married to Dixie Dee's granddaughter at Everton. 
two editor managers speak at your wedding, you've reported on them for years. Um, I just stay so balanced and calm with it all because it's, <laughs> it's, it's it, 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 you know, I, I feel like I'm intertwined with this football club and they do me editing sometimes, mm-hmm. but for you, yeah. my goodness. I don't know. I, th- I think it's because I'm getting on a bit now, you know, so you can, <laughs> you can look at things a little bit more dispassionately. Although I think I can. Um, when Leighton Baines scored that last minute equaliser against Leicester uh, in the League Cup last season, and I lost it to such a degree, I genuinely thought I was going to faint. I thought, whoa, calm down, calm down, <laughs> just you know, settle down. Um, yeah. It was just like such an incredible moment. But no, I mean, it affected me far more when I was younger. You know, so before I became a journalist, um, it was it was just your raison d'etre. You know, it was Everton Football Club. Um, you know, watching us win the FA Cup in 1984, and oh god, it was such an emotional moment. And uh, that you know, 84, 85 season was just like walking on air. And you know, I remember when when I was a kid, you know, and I'm not particularly religious by any stretch of the imagination, but when I was younger, my mum made me go to church, and you know, so join the boys' brigade. And so you know, I was basically you know, so brought up a Christian, and I used to pray. I used to pray, well, please, God, please don't let me die before Everton have won something. Please let me li- live to see Everton win something. Mm. And it basically, you know, so, you know, meant that much to you. Um, and, you know, as, as you get older, you realise, you know, you, you, you put things into perspective a little bit more. Yeah. When you become a journalist, obviously, you have to try and be a little bit more dispassionate you know, because you're in the press box and you can't be bouncing around, you know, so screaming and shouting. Although I have seen some journalists do that. Poor old. Yeah, that's naming. But poor old Richard Elias, who's uh, now a very successful crime reporter up in uh, Scotland. Daily Record, I think he worked for. Uh, he worked for the Daily Post, and he was briefly let loose on Daily Post match reports uh, for a couple of games <laughs> until it quickly became apparent that Richard is an absolute diehard blue, and he couldn't separate being a fan of being a journalist. And he just used to go ballistic <laughs> in press boxes, screaming and shouting and ranting until all the journalists said, but what's going on here? So he was very, very quickly taken off Daily Post match reports. But yeah, he just try and keep things into perspective and just, you know, I, I, can, I can see it because, you know, I've got children now and my son, Daniel, gets so wound up by it and so upset. And, you know, and I just tell him, well, hang on, hang on, you know, don't be so wound up by it. And, but I think, well, hang on, I was the same when I was that age. It's just mm. with age comes experience, I think. I hope that's yeah. the case anyway. Yeah. Well, who maybe. knows? If we ever do win anything again, maybe I will lose it again big time. Well, maybe that's what we need. Everyone needs to go out and pray a little bit more based on what you said. <laughs> we need, need some more d- divine intervention, mate, yeah? Uh, possibly, certainly, I've not seen us uh, <laughs> with anything for, for a long, long time. But mm-hmm. honestly, uh, fantastic stuff. Anyone out there listening to this, uh, if you're from my generation, if you're around watching Everton win stuff in the 80s, go out and buy it because there's so much for every Everton. It really brings to life so many wonderful, interesting, heartbreaking times in Everton Football Club's history. Uh, Dave, if anyone wants to go and get their hands on this, uh, obviously a great Christmas present for any Evertonian for that coming up as well. Uh, where can they buy it? Well, unfortunately, it's going to be, have to be online at the moment because everywhere is shut. Mm. I mean, uh, I was invited into Waterstones in town to sign a load of copies uh, just before the lockdown. And I was told there's good news and there's bad news uh, by the girl that welcomed me. I said, all right, go on. Because, well, the bad news is we've only got nine copies in store. I said, oh, right, why is that? Well, the good news is we've sold the rest. I thought, oh, great, <laughs> it's obviously selling quite well. Yeah. So I signed the nine that they had. And then uh, was willing to sign another 150 they were going to order for this week. Mm. But obviously, lockdown means that that's not going to happen now until, fingers crossed, December the 2nd, when hopefully everything opens again so as per normal. So, you know, if you can wait till then, you know, so all good bookshops, you know, so Waterstones, Pritchard's, uh, wherever, you know, so they have them in stock. Failing that, uh, it's going to have to go online. But uh, Reach Bookstore, uh, the play, if you just search 
reach bookstore, Grand Old TNT report, okay. uh, there's currently 40% off the hardback price. I think it's 14.99, but they've got 40% off, so you can get it for 8.99 at the moment, uh, plus postage and packing. That's probably the best place to go for it. But other than that, everywhere else, all your usual online retailers uh, will all sell it. Just search Grand Old Team to report. Yeah, uh, we'll put the link in the description on YouTube and the podcast as well. If you want to just follow that and get hold of it. Um, absolutely worth buying for Freddie Blue in your life or for yourself, of course. But yeah, Dave, uh, thanks very much for your time today, mate. Keep up the good work. And yeah, looking forward to the sequel when you can look <laughs> back on, on Carlo Angelotti's title winners in 2000. Well, it's not going to happen this year, is it, anymore? But 2021, 2022, <laughs> maybe. Well, what I'd like to do, I mean, I talked about this a long, long time ago with David France, who's a great friend of mine, was doing a Blue Bible. And it fits neatly into uh, an Old Testament and a New Testament and just a history of the football club season by season. 1878 to 1938-39 being the Old Testament and the New Testament 1945 to the present day. But it would be such an exhaustive volume that and I'd like to do it properly as well. And so many histories of the football club have been done, but I'd like to do that. Uh, maybe in time for the 150th anniversary of the football club, which is only seven years, seven yeah. years away. But yeah, maybe start working on that. Took Gavin seven years to do this. <laughs> seven years to do my next one. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Uh, Dave, thanks very much for your time, mate. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. And uh, we'll be back again later in the week here on The Blue Room. Um, who are you? I'm you, from the future. What do you want? I want to tell you about Dave. Dave has your future money. Spend it on whatever you need. With extra cash from Dave, you can get up to 500 bucks instantly with no interest and no credit check. Download the Dave app from the App Store right now. That's D-A-V-E. Sign up for an extra cash account and get up to $500 instantly for terms and conditions. Go to dave.com slash legal. Instant transfer fees apply. Banking provided by Evolve. Member FDIC. Sports Social Podcast Network.